0: The Law and the Promise Chapter 1 The Law Imagining Creates Reality Man is all imagination. God is man and exists in us and we in him. The eternal body of man is the imagination. That is, God himself. Blake The purpose of the first portion of this book is to show through actual true stories how imagining creates reality. Science progresses by way of hypotheses, tentatively tested and afterwards accepted or rejected according to the facts of experience. The claim that imagining creates reality needs no more consideration than is allowed by science. It proves itself in performance. The world in which we live is a world of imagination. In fact, life itself is an activity of imagining. For Blake wrote Professor Morrison of the University of St. Andrews, The world originates in a divine activity identical with what we know ourselves as the activity of imagination. His task being to open the immortal eyes of man inward into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. Nothing appears or continues in being by a power of its own. Events happen because comparatively stable imaginal activities created them, and they continue in being only as long as they receive such support. The secret of imagining, writes Douglas Fawcett, is the greatest of all problems to the solution of which the mystic aspires. Supreme power, supreme wisdom, supreme delight, lie in the far-off solution of this mystery. When man solves the mystery of imagining, he will have discovered the secret of causation, and that is, imagining creates reality. Therefore, the man who is aware of what he is imagining knows what he is creating, realizes more and more that the drama of life is imaginal, not physical. All activity is at bottom imaginal. An awakened imagination works with a purpose. It creates and conserves the desirable and transforms or destroys the undesirable. Divine imagining and human imagining are not two powers at all, rather one. The valid distinction which exists between the seeming two lies not in the substance with which they operate, but in the degree of intensity of the operant power itself. Acting at high tension, an imaginal act is an immediate objective fact. Keyed low... An imaginal act is realized in a time process. But whether imagination is keyed high or low, it is the ultimate, essentially non objective reality from which objects are poured forth like sudden fancies. Hermann Kaiserling, Count, The Travel Diary of a Philosopher. No object is independent of imagining on some level or levels. Everything in the world owes its character to imagination on one of its various levels. Objective reality, writes Fitch, is solely produced through imagination. Objects seem so independent of our perception of them that we incline to forget that they owe their origin to imagination. The world in which we live is a world of imagination, and man through his imaginal activities, creates the realities and the circumstances of life. This he does either knowingly or unknowingly. Men pay too little attention to this priceless gift. The human imagination and a gift is practically non-existent unless there is a conscious possession of it and a readiness to use it. All men possess the power to create reality, but this power sleeps as though dead when not consciously exercised. Men live in the very heart of creation, the human imagination, yet are no wiser for what takes place therein. The future will not be fundamentally different from the imaginal activities of man. Therefore, the individual who can summon at will whatever imaginal activity he pleases and to whom the visions of his imagination are as real as the forms of nature is master of his fate. The future is the imaginal activity of man in its creative march. Imagining is the creative power not only of the poet, the artist, the actor and orator, but of the scientist, the inventor, the merchant, and the artisan. Its abuse in unrestrained, unlovely image-making is obvious. But its abuse in undue repression breeds a sterility which robs man of actual wealth of experience. Imagining novel solutions to ever more complex problems is far more noble than to run from problems. Life is the continual solution of a continuously synthetic problem. Imagining creates events. The world created out of men's imagining comprises unnumbered warring beliefs. Therefore, they can never be a perfectly stable or static state. Today's events are bound to disturb yesterday's established order. Imaginative men and women invariably unsettle a pre-existing peace of mind. Do not bow before the dictate of facts and accept life on the basis of the world without. Assert the supremacy of your imaginal acts over facts and put all things in subjection to them. Hold fast to your ideal in your imagination. Nothing can take it from you, but your failure to persist in imagining the ideal realized. Imagine only such states that are of value or promise well. To attempt to change circumstances before you change your imaginal activity is to struggle against the very nature of things. There can be no outer change until there is first an imaginal change. Everything you do unaccompanied by an imaginal change is but futile readjustment of surfaces. Imagining the wish fulfilled brings about a union with that state, and during that union, you behave in keeping with your imaginal change. This shows you that an imaginal change will result in a change of behavior. However... Your ordinary imaginal alterations as you pass from one state to another are not transformations because each of them is so rapidly succeeded by another in the reverse direction. But whenever one state grows so stable as to become your constant mood, your habitual attitude, then that habitual state defines your character and is a true transformation. How do you do it? self-abandonment that is the secret you must abandon yourself mentally to your wish fulfilled in your love for that state and in so doing live in the new state and no more in the old state you can't commit yourself to what you do not love so the secret of self-commission is faith plus love faith is believing what is unbelievable Commit yourself to the feeling of the wish fulfilled in faith that this act of self-commission will become a reality. And it must become a reality because imagining creates reality. Imagination is both conservative and transformative. It is conservative when it builds its world from images supplied by memory and the evidence of the senses. It is creatively transformative when it imagines things as they ought to be, building its world out of the generous dreams of fancy. In the procession of images, the ones that take precedence, naturally, are those of the senses. Nevertheless, a present sense impression is only an image. It does not differ in nature from a memory image or the image of a wish. What makes a present sense impression so objectively real is the individual's imagination functioning in it and thinking from it. Whereas in a memory image or a wish, the individual's imagination is not functioning in it and thinking from it, but is functioning out of it and thinking of it. If you would enter into the image in your imagination, then you would know what it is to be creatively transformative. Then would you realize your wish, and then you would be happy. Every image can be embodied, but unless you, yourself, enter the image and think from it, it is incapable of birth. Therefore, it is the height of folly to expect the wish to be realized by the mere passage of time. That which requires imaginative occupancy to produce its effect, obviously cannot be effected without such occupancy. You cannot be in one image and not suffer the consequences of not being in another. Imagination is spiritual sensation. Enter the image of the wish fulfilled, then give it sensory vividness and tones of reality by mentally acting as you would act were it a physical fact. Now, this is what I mean by spiritual sensation. Imagine that you are holding a rose in your hand. Smell it. Do you detect the odor of roses? Well, if the rose is not there, why is its fragrance in the air? Through spiritual sensation, that is, through imaginal sight, sound, scent, taste, and touch, you can give to the image sensory vividness. If you do this, all things will conspire to aid your harvesting, and upon reflection, you will see how subtle were the threads that led to your goal you could never have devised the means which your imaginal activity employed to fulfill itself. If you long to escape from your present sense fixation, to transform your present life into a dream of what might well be, you need but imagine that you are already what you want to be and to feel the way you would expect to feel under such circumstances. Like the make-believe of a child who is remaking the world after its own heart. Create your world out of pure dreams of fancy. Mentally enter into your dream. Mentally do what you would actually do were it physically true. You will discover that dreams are realized not by the rich, but by the imaginative. Nothing stands between you and the fulfillment of your dreams, but facts, and facts are the creations of imagining. If you change your imagining you will change the facts. Man and his past are one continuous structure. This structure contains all of the facts which have been conserved and still operate below the threshold of his surface mind. For him, it is merely history. For him, it seems unalterable, a dead and firmly fixed past. But for itself, it is living. It is part of the living age. He cannot leave behind him the mistakes of the past, for nothing disappears. Everything that has been is still in existence. The past still exists, and it gives and still gives its results. Man must go back in memory, seek for and destroy the causes of evil, however far back they lie. This going into the past and replaying a scene of the past in imagination as it ought to have been played the first time, I call revision, and revision results in repeal. Changing your life means changing the past. The causes of any present evil are the unrevised scenes of the past. The past and the present form the whole structure of man. They are carrying all of its contents with it. Any alteration of content will result in an alteration in the present and future. Live nobly, so that mind can store a past well worthy of recall. Should you fail to do so, remember, the first act of correction or cure is always revise. If the past is recreated into the present, so will the revised past be recreated into the present. Or else the claim, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, is a lie. And it is no lie. Isaiah 1.18 The purpose of the story-to-story commentary that follows is to link up as briefly as possible the distinct but never-disconnected themes of the 14 chapters into which I have divided the first part of this book. It will serve, I hope, as a thread of coherent thought that binds the whole into proof of its claim. Imagining creates reality. To make such a claim is easily done. To prove it in the experience of others is far sterner. To stir you to use the law constructively in your own life. That is the aim of this book. Chapter 2. Dwell Therein My God, I heard this day that none doth build a stately habitation, but he that means to dwell therein. What house more stately hath there been, or can be, than is man? to whose creation all things are in decay. George Herbert I wish it were true of man's noble dreams, but, unfortunately, perpetual construction, deferred occupancy, is the common fault of man. Why build a stately habitation, unless you intend to dwell therein? Why build a dream house and not dwell therein? This is the secret of those who lie in bed awake while they dream things true. They know how to live in their dream until, in fact, they do just that. Man, through the medium of a controlled waking dream, can predetermine his future. That imaginal activity of living in the feeling of the wish fulfilled leads man across a bridge of incident to the fulfillment of the dream. If we live in the dream, thinking from it and not of it, then the creative power of imagining will answer our adventurous fancy, and the wish fulfilled will break in upon us and take us unawares. Man is all imagination, therefore man must be where he is in imagination, for his imagination is himself. To realize that imagination is not something tied to the senses or enclosed within the spatial boundary of the body is most important. Although man moves about in space by movement of his physical body, he needs not be so restricted. He can move by a change in what he is aware of. However, real the scene on which sight rests, man can gaze on one never before witnessed he can always remove the mountain if it upsets his concept of what life ought to be. This ability to mentally move from things as they are to things as they ought to be is one of the most important discoveries that man can make. It reveals man as a center of imagining with powers of intervention which enable him to alter the course of observed events, moving from success to success through a series of mental transformations of nature, of others, and himself. For many years, a doctor and his wife dreamed about their stately habitation. But not until they imaginatively lived in it did they manifest it. Here is their story. Some 15 years ago, Mrs. M. and I purchased a lot on which we built a two-story building housing our office and living area. We left ample space on the lot for an apartment building, if and when our finances would permit. All those years we were busy paying off our mortgage, and at the end of that time had no money for the additional building we still desired so much. It was true that we had an ample savings account, which meant security for our business, but to use any part of it for a new building would be to jeopardize that security. But now your teaching awakened a new concept, boldly telling us we could have what we most desired through the controlled use of our imagination and that realizing a desire was made more convincing without money. We decided to put it to a test, to forget about money and concentrate our attention on the thing we desired most in this world, the new apartment building. With this principle in mind, We mentally constructed the new building as we wanted it, actually drawing physical plans so we could better formulate our mental picture of the completed structure, never forgetting to think from the end, in our case, the completed occupied building, We took many imaginative trips through our apartment house, renting the units to imaginary tenants, examining in detail every room and enjoying the feeling of pride as friends offered congratulations on the unique planning. We brought into our imaginal scene one friend in particular-I shall call her Mrs. X-a lady we had not seen for some time, as she had given us up socially believing us a bit peculiar in our new way of thinking. In our imaginal scene, we took her through the building and asked how she liked it. Hearing her voiced distinctly, we had her reply, Doctor, I think it is beautiful. One day, while talking together of our building, my wife mentioned a contractor who had constructed several apartment houses in our neighborhood. We knew of him only by the name that appeared on signs adjacent to buildings under construction. But realizing that if we were living in the end, we would not be looking for a contractor. We promptly forgot this angle. Continuing these periods of daily imagining for several weeks, we both felt we were now fused with our desire and had successfully been living in the end. One day, a stranger entered our office and identified himself as the contractor whose name my wife had mentioned weeks before. In an apologetic manner, he said, I don't know why I stopped here. I normally don't go to see people, but rather people come to see me. He explained that he passed our office often and had wondered why there wasn't an apartment building on the corner lot. We assured him we would like very much to have such a building there, but that we had no money to put into the project, not even the few hundred dollars it would take for plans. Our negative response did not faze him, and seemingly compelled, he began to figure and devise ways and means to carry out the job, unasked and unencouraged by us. Forgetting the incident, we were quite startled when a few days later this man called informing us that plans were completed and that the proposed building would cost us $30,000. We thanked him politely and did absolutely nothing. We knew we had been living imaginatively in the end of a completed building and that imagination would assemble that building perfectly without any outside assistance from us. So... We were not surprised when the contractor called again the next day to say he had found a set of blueprints in his files that fitted our needs perfectly with few alterations. This, we were informed, would save us the architect's fee for new plans. We thanked him again and still did nothing. Logical thinkers would insist that such negative response from prospective customers would completely end the matter. Instead. Two days later, the contractor again called with the news that he had located a finance company willing to cover the necessary loan with the exception of a few thousand dollars. That sounds incredible. But we still did nothing. For remember, to us this building was completed and rented and in our imagination we had not put one penny into its construction. The balance of this tale reads like a sequel to Alice in Wonderland. For the contractor came to our office the next day and said as though presenting us with a gift, you people are going to have that new building anyway. I've decided to finance the balance of the loan myself. If this is agreeable, I'll have my lawyer draw up the papers and you can pay me back out of net profits from rentals. This time, we did do something. We signed the papers, and construction began immediately. Most of the apartment units were rented before final completion, and all but one occupied the day of completion. We were so thrilled by the seemingly miraculous events of the past few months that for a while we didn't understand this seeming flaw in our imaginal picture. But knowing what we had already accomplished through the power of imagining... We immediately conceived another imaginal scene, and in it this time, instead of showing the party through the unit and hearing the words, we'll take it, we ourselves in imagination visited tenants who had already moved in that apartment. We allowed them to show us through the rooms and heard their pleased and satisfied comments. Three days later, that apartment was rented. Our original imaginary drama had objectified itself in every detail, save one. And that one became a reality when one month later our friend Mrs. X surprised us with a long overdue visit, expressing her desire to see our new building. Gladly we took her through and at the end of the tour heard her speak the line we had heard in our imagination so many weeks before as with emphasis on each word she said, Doctor, I think it is beautiful. Our dream of 15 years was realized. And we know now that it could have been realized any time within those 15 years if we had known the secret of imagining and how to live in the end of desire. But now it was realized. Our one big desire was objectified. And we did not put one penny of our own money into it. Dr. M. Through the medium of a dream, a controlled waking dream, the doctor and his wife created reality. They learned how to live in their dream house, as in fact now they do. Although help seemingly came from without, the course of events was ultimately determined by the imaginal activity of the doctor and his wife. The participants were drawn into their imaginal drama because it was dramatically necessary that they should be. Their imaginal structure demanded it. All things by a law divine in one another's being mingle. Percy Bysshe Shelley loves philosophy. The following story illustrates the way in which a lady prepared her stately habitation by imaginatively sleeping in or dwelling therein. A few months ago, my husband decided to place our home on the market. The main object for the move, which we had discussed many times, was to find a home large enough for the two of us, my mother and my aunt, in addition to ten cats, three dogs, and one parakeet. Believe it or not, the contemplated move was my husband's idea, as he loved my mother and aunt and said, I was at their house most of the time anyway, so why not live together and pay one tax bill? I liked the idea tremendously. But I knew that this new home would have to be something very special in size, location, and arrangement, as I insisted on privacy for all concerned. So at the moment, I was undecided whether to sell our present home or not. But I didn't argue, as I knew quite well from past experience with imagining that our house would never sell until I stopped sleeping in it. Two months and four or five real estate brokers later, My husband had given up on the sale of our house, and so had the brokers. At this point, I had convinced myself I now wanted the change. So, for four nights in my imagination, I went to sleep in the kind of home I would like to own. On the fifth day, my husband had an appointment at a friend's home, and while there, met a stranger who just happened to be looking for a house in the hills. He was, of course... Brought swiftly back to see our house, which he walked through once and said, I'll buy it. This doesn't make us very popular with the brokers, but that was all right with me, as I was happy to keep the broker's commission in the family. We moved within 10 days and stayed with my mother while looking for our new home. We listed our requirements with every agent on the Sunset Strip, only because I wouldn't move out of the area and each one of them, without exception, informed us we were both mad. It was entirely impossible, they said, to find an older home of English style, with two separate living rooms, separate apartments, a library, and built on a flat knoll with enough ground space to fence for large dogs, and located in one particular area. When we told them the price we would pay for this house, they just looked sad. I said that wasn't all we wanted. We wanted wood paneling all through the house, a huge fireplace, a magnificent view, and seclusion. No close neighbors, please. At this point, the lady agent would giggle and remind me that there was no such house. But if there were, they would realize five times what we were willing to pay. But I knew There was such a house, because my imagination had been sleeping in it, and if I am my imagination, then I had been sleeping in it. By the second week, we had exhausted five real estate offices, and the gentleman in the sixth office was looking a little wild, when one of his partners, who had not spoken until then, said, Why don't you show them the place up King's Road? A third partner in the office laughed sourly and said, that isn't even listed. And besides, the old lady would throw you off the property. She's got two acres up there, and you know she wouldn't split. Well, I didn't know what she wouldn't split, but my interest had been aroused by the street name, for I liked that particular area best of all. So I asked, why not just take a look anyway? For laughs. As we drove up the street and turned off onto a private road, we approached a large two-story house built of redwood and brick, English in appearance, surrounded by tall trees and sitting alone and aloof on its own knoll, viewing the city below from all of its many windows. I felt a peculiar excitement as we walked to the front door and were greeted by a lovely woman who graciously asked us in. I do not think I breathed for the next minute or two, for I had walked into the most exquisite room I had ever seen. The solid redwood walls and the brick of a great fireplace rose to a height of twenty-eight feet, terminating in an arched ceiling joined together by huge redwood beams. The room was straight out of Dickens' and I could almost hear Christmas carolers singing on the balcony of the upstairs dining room, which looked out over the living room. A great cathedral window gave a view of sky, mountains, and city far below, and the beautiful old redwood walls glowed in the sunlight. We were shown through a spacious apartment on the lower floor, with connecting library, separate entrance, and separate patio. Two staircases led upward to a long hall, opening into two separated bedrooms and baths. And at the end of the hall was, yes, a second living room, opening out onto a second patio, screened by trees and redwood fencing. Built on two acres of beautifully landscaped grounds, I began to understand what the agent had meant by saying she wouldn't split for on one acre stood a large swimming pool and pool house completely separated from the main house, but undoubtedly belonging to it. It did indeed seem to be an impossible situation, as we did not want two acres of highly taxable property plus a swimming pool a block away from the house. Before we left, I walked through that magnificent living room once more, going up the stairs to the dining room balcony. I turned, and looking down, saw my husband standing by the fireplace, pipe in hand, with an expression of perfect satisfaction on his face. I placed my hands on the balcony railing and watched him for a moment. When we were back in the real estate office, the three agents were ready to close for the day. But my husband detained them, saying, Let's make her an offer anyway. Maybe she will split the property. What can we lose? One agent left the office without a word. Another said, Ugh, the idea is ridiculous. The agent we had originally talked to said, forget it. It's a pipe dream. My husband is not easily annoyed. But when he is, there is no more stubborn creature on earth. He was now annoyed. He sat down, slammed his hand on the desk and roared. It's your business to submit offers, isn't it? They agreed that this was so, and finally promised to submit our offer on the property. We left, and that night, in my imagination, I stood on that dining room balcony and looked down at my husband standing by the fireplace. He looked up at me and said, Well, honey, how do you like our new home? I said... I love it. I continued to see that beautiful room and my husband in it and felt the balcony railing gripped in my hands until I fell asleep. The next day, as we were having dinner in my mother's house, the telephone rang and the agent, in an unbelieving voice, informed me that we had just purchased a house. The owner had split the property right down the middle, giving us the house and the acre it stood on for the price we offered j r b dreamers often lie in bed awake while they do dream things true william shakespeare romeo and juliet one must adopt either the way of imagination or the way of sense no compromise or neutrality is possible he who is not for me is against me matthew 12:30 Luke 11.23 When man finally identifies himself with his imagination rather than his senses, he has at long last discovered the core of reality. I have often been warned by self-styled realists that man will never realize his dream by simply imagining that it is already here. Yet, man can realize his dream by simply imagining that it is already here. That is exactly what this collection of stories proves. If only men were prepared to live imaginatively in the feeling of the wish fulfilled, advancing confidently in their controlled waking dream, then the power of imagining would answer their adventurous fancy, and the wish fulfilled would break in upon them and take them unawares. Nothing is more continuously wonderful than the things that happen every day to the man with imagination sufficiently awake to realize their wonder. Observe your imaginal activities. Imagine better than the best you know and create a better world for yourself and others. Live as though the wish had come, even though it is yet to come and you will shorten the period of waiting. The world is imaginal, not mechanistic. Imaginal acts, not blind fate, determine the course of history. Chapter 3. Turn the Wheel Backward. Oh, let your strong imagination turn the great wheel backward until Troy unburn. Sir John Collings Squire, The Birds. All life is, throughout the ages, nothing but the continuing solution of a continuous synthetic problem. H.G. Wells. The perfectly stable or static state is always unattainable. The end attained objectively always realizes more than the end the individual originally had in view. This, in turn, creates a new situation of inner conflict, needing novel solutions to force man along the path of creative evolution. His touch is infinite and lends a yonder to all ends. George Meredith. Him To color, today's events are bound to disturb yesterday's established order. The creatively active imagination invariably unsettles a pre-existing peace of mind. The question may arise as to how, by representing others to ourselves as better than they really were, or mentally rewriting a letter to make it conform to our wish, or by revising the scene of an accident, the interview with the employer and so on could change what seems to be the unalterable facts of the past. But remember, my claims for imagining. Imagining creates reality. What it makes, it can unmake. It is not only conservative, building a life from images supplied by memory. It is also creatively transformative, altering a theme already in being. The parable of the unjust steward, Luke 16:1 through 8 gives the answer to this question. We can alter our world by means of a certain illegal imaginal practice, by means of a mental falsification of the facts. That is, by means of a certain intentional imaginal alteration of that which we have experienced. All this is done in one's own imagination. This is a form of falsehood, which not only is not condemned, but is actually approved in the gospel teaching. By means of such a falsehood, a man destroys the causes of evil and acquires friends, and on the strength of this revision proves, judging by the high praise the unjust steward received from his master, that he is deserving of confidence. Because imagining creates reality we can carry revision to the extreme and revise a scene that would be otherwise unforgivable. We learn to distinguish between man, who is all imagination, and those states into which he may enter. An unjust steward, looking at another's distress, will represent the other to himself as he ought to be seen. Were he himself in need... He would enter his dream in his imagination and imagine what he would see and how things would seem and how people would act after these things should be. Then, in this state, he would fall asleep, feeling the way he would expect to feel under such circumstances. Would that all the Lord's people were unjust stewards, mentally falsifying the facts of life to deliver individuals forevermore for the imaginal change goes forward until at length the altered pattern is realized on the heights of attainment. Our future is our imaginal activity in its creative march. Imagine better than the best you know. To revise the past is to reconstruct it with new content. Man should daily relive the day as he wished he had lived it, revising the scenes to make them conform to his ideals. For instance, suppose today's mail brought disappointing news. Revise the letter. Mentally rewrite it and make it conform to the news you wish you had received. Then, in imagination, read the revised letter over and over again and this will arouse the feelings of naturalness and imaginal acts become facts as soon as we feel natural in the act. This is the essence of revision and revision results in repeal. This is exactly what F.B. did. Late in July, I wrote to a real estate agent of my desire to sell a piece of land which had been a financial burden to me. His negative reply listed all the reasons why sales were at a standstill in that area, and he forecast a bleak period of waiting until after the first of the year. I received this letter on a Tuesday, and in my imagination... I rewrote it with words indicating that the agent was eager to take my listing. I read this revised letter over and over, and I extended my imaginal drama using your theme of the four mighty ones of your imagination from your book, Seed Time and Harvest. The producer, the author, the director, and the actor. In my imaginal scene as producer, I suggested the theme, The Lot is Sold for a Profit. As the author, I wrote this simple scene, which to me implied fulfillment. Standing in the real estate office, I extended my hand to the agent and said, Thank you, sir. And he replied, It was a pleasure doing business with you. As director, I rehearsed myself as actor until that scene was vividly real, and I felt the relief which would be mine if the burden were really lifted. Three days later. The agent I had originally written phoned me, saying he had a deposit for my lot at the price I had specified. I signed the papers in his office the next day, extended my hand and said, Thank you, sir. The agent replied, It was a pleasure doing business with you. Five days after I had constructed and enacted an imaginal scene, it became a physical reality and was played word for word just as I had heard it in my imagination. The feeling of relief and joy came, not so much from selling the property, but from the incontrovertible proof that my imagined drama worked. F.B. If the thing accomplished were all how futile. But F.B. discovered a power within himself that can consciously create circumstances. By mentally falsifying the facts of life, man moves from passive reaction to active creation. This breaks the wheel of recurrence and builds a cumulatively enlarging future. If man does not always create in the full sense of the word, it is because he is not faithful to his vision, or else he thinks of what he wants rather than from his wish fulfilled. Man is such an extraordinary synthesis, partly tied to his senses and partly free to dream that his internal conflicts are perennial. The state of conflict in the individual is expressed in society. Life is a romantic adventure. To live creatively, imagining novel solutions to ever more complex problems, is far nobler than to restrain or kill out desire. All that is desired can be imagined into existence. Wouldst thou be in a dream and yet not sleep? John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress. Try to revise your day every night before falling asleep. Try to visualize clearly and enter into the revised scene, which would be the imaginal solution of your problem. The revised imaginal structure may have a great influence on others, but that is not your concern. The other influenced in the following story is profoundly grateful for that influence. LSE writes Last August, While on a blind date, I met the man I wanted to marry. This happens sometimes, and it happened to me. He was everything I had ever thought of as desirable in a husband. Two days after this enchanted evening, it was necessary for me to change my place of residence because of my work, and that same week, the mutual friend who had introduced me to this man moved away from the city. I realized that the man I had met probably did not know of my new address, And frankly, I was not sure he knew my name. After your last lecture, I spoke to you on this situation. Although I had plenty of other dates, I could not forget this one man. Your lecture was based on revising our day. And after speaking to you, I determined to revise my day every day. Before going to sleep that night, I felt I was in a different bed in my own home as a married woman and not as a single working girl sharing an apartment with three other girls. I twisted an imaginary wedding band on my imaginary left hand, saying over and over to myself, This is wonderful. I really am Mrs. J.E. And I fell asleep in what was, a moment before, a waking dream. I repeated this imaginary scene for one month, night after night. The first week in October, he found me. On our second date, I knew my dreams were rightly placed. Your teaching tells us to live in the end of our desire until that desire becomes a fact. So although I did not know how he felt toward me, I continued, night after night, living in the feeling of my dream realized. The results? In November, he proposed. In January, we announced our engagement. And the following May, we were married. The loveliest part of it all, however, is that I am happier than I ever dreamed possible. And I know in my heart he is too. Mrs. J. E. By using her imagination radically instead of conservatively, by building her world out of pure dreams of fancy, rather than using images supplied by memory, she brought about the fulfillment of her dream. Common sense would have used images supplied by her memory and thereby perpetuated the fact of lack in her life. Imagination created what she desired out of a dream of fancy. Everyone must live wholly on the level of imagination and it must be consciously and deliberately undertaken. Lovers and madmen have such Seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason overcomprehends. William Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream. If our time of revision be well spent, we need not worry about results. Our fondest hopes will be realized. Art thou real, Earth? Am I? In whose dream do we exist? Frank Kendon, The Time Piece. There is no inevitable permanence in anything. Both past and present continue to exist only because they are sustained by imagining on some level or other, and a radical transformation of life is always possible by man revising the undesirable part of it. In his letter, Mr. R.S. questions this subject of influence. During your current series of lectures... Trouble developed with collections on one of my trust deeds. The security, a house and lot, was neglected and run down. The owners were apparently spending their money in bars while their two little girls, aged 9 and 11, were noticeably uncared for. However, forgetting appearances, I began to revise the situation. In my imagination, I drove my wife past the property and said to her, Isn't the yard beautiful? It's so neat and well cared for. Those people really show their love for their home. This is one trust deed we will never have to worry about. I would see the house and lot as I wanted to see it. A place so lovely, it gave me a warm glow of pleasure. Every time the thought of this property came to me, I repeated my imaginal scene. After I had been practicing this revision for some time, the woman who lived in the house had an automobile accident. While she was in the hospital, her husband disappeared. The children were cared for by neighbors, and I was tempted to visit the mother in the hospital to reassure her of assistance, if necessary. But how could I, when my imaginary scene implied that she and her family were happy, successful, and obviously contented? So I did nothing but my daily revision. A short while after leaving the hospital, the woman and her two daughters disappeared also. Payments were sent in on the property, and a few months later, she reappeared with a wedding certificate and a new husband. At this writing, all payments are right up to date. The two little girls are obviously happy and well cared for, and a room has been added to the property by the owners, giving our trust deed additional security. It was mighty nice to solve my problem without threats, unkind words, eviction, or worry about the little girls. But was there something in my imagining that sent this woman to the hospital? R.S. Any imaginal activity acquiring intensity through our concentrated attention to clarity of the end desired tends to overflow into regions beyond where we are. But we must leave it to take care of such imaginal activity itself. It is marvelously resourceful in adapting and adjusting means to realize itself. Once we think in terms of influence rather than of clarity of the end desired, the effort of imagination becomes an effort of will, and the great art of imagining is perverted into tyranny. The buried past usually lies deeper than our surface mind can plumb. But fortunately for this lady, she remembered and proved that the made past can also be unmade through revision. For 39 years, I had suffered from a weak back. The pain would increase and decrease, but would never leave completely. The condition had progressed to the point where I used medical treatment almost constantly. The doctor would put the hip right for the moment, but the pain simply would not go away. One night, I heard you speak of revision and wondered to myself if a condition of almost 40 years could be revised. I had remembered that at the age of three or four years, I had fallen backward from a very high swing and had been quite ill at that time because of a serious hip injury. From that time on, I had never been completely free from pain and had paid many a dollar to alleviate the condition to no avail. This year, during the month of August, the pain had become more intense, and one night, I decided to test myself and attempt to revise that Ancient accident, which had been the cause of so much distress in pain and costly medical fees most of my adult life. Many nights passed before I could feel myself back to the age of childhood play, but I succeeded. One night I actually felt myself on that swing, feeling the rush of wind as the swing rose higher and higher. As the swing slowed down, I jumped forward, landing solidly and easily on my feet. In the imaginal action, I ran to my mother and insisted that she come watch what I could do. I did it again, jumping down from the swing and landing safely on my two feet. I repeated this imaginal act over and over until I fell asleep in the doing of it. Within two days, the pain in my back and hip began to recede, and within two months pain no longer existed for me. A condition that had plagued me for more than thirty-nine years, that had cost a small fortune in attempted cure, was no more. L. H. It is to the pruning shears of revision that we owe our prime fruit. Man and his past are one continuous structure. This structure contains all of the past, which has been conserved and still operates below the threshold of his senses, to influence the present and the future of his life the whole is carrying all of its contents with it any alteration of content will result in an alteration in the present and the future the first act of correction or cure is always revise if the past can be recreated into the present so can the revised past and thus The revised past appears within the very heart of her present life. Not fate, but a revised past brought her good fortune. Make results and accomplishment, the crucial test of true imagination, and your confidence in the power of imagination to create reality will grow gradually from your experiments with revision confronted by experience. Only by this process of experiment can you realize the potential power of your awakened and controlled imagination. How much do you owe, my master, he said? A hundred measures of oil, and he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Luke 16, 5 and 6 This parable of the unjust steward urges us to mentally falsify the facts of life, to alter a theme already in being. By means of such imaginative falsehoods, a man acquires friends. Luke 16, 9. As each day falls, mentally revise the facts of life and make them conform to events well worthy of recall. Tomorrow will take up the altered pattern and go forward until at length it is realized on the heights of attainment. The reader will find it worthwhile to follow these clues. Imaginal construction of scenes implying the wish fulfilled and imaginative participation in these scenes until tones of reality are reached. We are dealing with the secret of imagining in which man is seen awakening into a world completely subject to his imaginative power. Man can understand recurrence of events well enough, the building of a world from images supplied by memory, things remaining as they are. This gives him a sense of security in the stability of things. However, the presence within him of a power which awakens and becomes what it wills, radically changing its form, its environment, and the circumstances of life, inspires in him a feeling of insecurity, a dreadful fear of the future. Now, it is high time to awake out of sleep, Romans 13.11, and put an end to all the unlovely creations of sleeping man. Revise each day. Let your strong imagination turn the great wheel backward until Troy unburn. Sir John Collings Squire, The Birds Chapter 4 There is no fiction. The distinction between what is real and what is imaginary is not one that can be finally maintained. All existing things are in an intelligible sense imaginary. John S. Mackenzie. There is no fiction. If an imaginal activity can produce a physical effect, our physical world must be essentially imaginal. To prove this would require merely that we observe our imaginal activities and watch to see whether or not they produce corresponding external effects. If they do, then we must conclude that there is no fiction. Today's imaginal drama, fiction, becomes tomorrow's fact. If we had this wider view of causation, that causation is mental, not physical, that our mental states are causative of physical effects, then we would realize our responsibility as a creator and imagine only the best imaginable. Fable enacted as a sort of stage play in the mind is what creates the physical facts of life. Man believes that reality resides in the solid objects he sees around him, that it is in this world that the drama of life originates, that events spring suddenly into existence, created moment by moment out of antecedent physical facts. But causation does not lie in the external world of facts. The drama of life originates in the imagination of man. The real act of becoming takes place within man's imagination and not without. The following stories could define causation as the assemblage of mental states, which occurring creates that which the assemblage implies. The foreword from Walter Lord's A Night to Remember illustrates my claim imagining creates reality. In 1898... A struggling author named Morgan Robertson concocted a novel about a fabulous Atlantic liner far larger than any that had ever been built. Robertson loaded his ship with rich and complacent people and then wrecked it one cold April night on an iceberg. This somehow showed the futility of everything, and in fact, the book was called Futility, when it happened that year published by the firm of M.F. Mansfield. Fourteen years later, a British shipping company named the White Star Line built a steamer remarkably like the one in Robertson's novel. The new liner was 66,000 tons displacement. Robertson's was 70,000 tons. The real ship was 882.5 feet long. The fictional one was 800 feet both could carry about 3,000 people, and both had enough lifeboats for only a fraction of that number. But then this didn't seem to matter because both were labeled unshakable. On April 19, 1912, the real ship left Southampton on her maiden voyage to New York. Her cargo included a priceless copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and a list of passengers collectively worth $250 million. On her way over, she too struck an iceberg and went down on a cold April night. Robertson called his ship the Titan. The White Star Line called its ship the Titanic. Had Morgan Robertson known that imagining creates reality, that today's fiction is tomorrow's fact, Would he have written the novel Futility? In the moment of the tragic catastrophe, writes Schopenhauer, the conviction becomes more distinct to us than ever that life is a bad dream from which we have to awake, and the bad dream is caused by the imaginal activity of sleeping humanity. Imaginal activities may be remote from their manifestation and unobserved events are only appearance. Causation as seen in this tragedy is elsewhere in space-time. Far off from the scene of action, invisible to all, was Robertson's imaginal activity. Like a scientist in a control room directing his guided missile through space-time. Who paints a picture, writes a play or book. Which others read while he's asleep in bed. Oh, the other side of the world when they're overlooked. His page, the sleeper, might as well be dead. What knows he of his distant, unfelt life? What knows he of the thoughts his thoughts are raising, the life his life is giving, or the strife concerning him, some caviling, some praising? Yet, which is most alive? He who's asleep or his quick spirit in some other place or score of other places that doth keep attention fixed and sleep from others' chase. Which is the he, the he that sleeps or he that his own he can neither feel nor see? Samuel Butler. Imaginative writers communicate not their vision of the world but their attitudes which result in their vision just a short while before Catherine Mansfield died, she said to her friend, Orage, There are in life as many aspects as attitudes towards it, and aspects change with attitudes. Could we change our attitude, we should not only see life differently, but life itself would come to be different. Life would undergo a change of appearance, because we ourselves had undergone a change in attitude. Perception of a new pattern is what I call a creative attitude towards life. Prophets, wrote Blake, in the modern sense of the word, have never existed. Jonah was no prophet in the modern sense, for his prophecy of Nineveh failed. Every honest man is a prophet. He utters his opinion both of private and public matters. Thus, if you go on so, the result is so. He never says, such a thing shall happen... Let you do what you will. A prophet is a seer, not an arbitrary dictator. The function of the prophet is not to tell us what is inevitable, but to tell us what can be built up out of persistent imaginal activities. The future is determined by the imaginal activities of humanity, activities in their creative march, activities which can be seen in your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in bed. Daniel 2.28 Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Numbers 11.29 In the true sense of the word, like this dancer who now, from the summit of his realized ideal, sights yet higher peaks that are to be scaled, After you have read this story, you will understand why he is so confident that he can predetermine any materialistic future he desires and why he is equally sure that others give reality to what were otherwise a mere figment of his imagination. That there exists and can exist nothing outside imagining on some level or other. Nothing continues in being save what imagining supports. The mind can make substance and people planets of its own with beings brighter than they have been and give a breath to forms which can outlive all flesh. Lord G. Byron. As my story begins at the age of 19, I was a mildly successful dancing teacher and continued in this static state for almost five years. At the end of this time, I met a young lady who talked me into attending your lectures. My thought upon hearing you say imagining creates reality was that the entire idea was ridiculous. However, I decided to accept your challenge and disprove your thesis. I bought your book out of this world and read it many times. Still unconvinced, I set myself a rather ambitious goal. My present position was as an instructor with the Arthur Murray Dance Studio, and my goal was to own a franchise and be boss of an Arthur Murray studio myself. This seemed the most unlikely thing in the world, as franchises were extremely difficult to secure. But on top of this fact, I was completely without the necessary funds to begin such an operation. Nevertheless... I assumed the feeling of my wish fulfilled as night after night, in my imagination, I went to sleep managing my own studio. Three weeks later, a friend called me from Reno, Nevada. He had the Murray studio there and said it was too much for him to cope with alone. He offered me a partnership and I was delighted. So delighted, in fact, that I hastened to Reno on borrowed money and promptly forgot all about you and your story of imagination. My partner and I worked hard and were very successful. But after a year, I was still not satisfied. I wanted more. I began thinking of ways and means to get another studio. All my efforts failed. One night, as I retired, I was restless and decided to read. As I looked through my collection of books, I noticed your slender volume out of this world. I thought of the silly nonsense I had gone through one year ago before getting my own studio. Getting my own studio? The words in my mind electrified me. I reread the book that night. And later in my imagination, I heard my superior praise the good job we had done in Reno and suggest we acquire a second studio as he had a second location ready for us if we desired to expand. I reenacted this imaginal scene nightly without fail. Three weeks from the first night of my imaginal drama, it materialized almost word for word. My partner accepted the new studio in Bakersfield, and I had the Reno studio alone. Now I was convinced of the truth of your teaching, and never again will I forget. Now I wanted to share this wonderful knowledge of imaginal power with my staff. I tried to tell them of the marvels they could accomplish, but I was unable to reach many, although one fantastic incident resulted from my efforts to tell this story. A young teacher told me he believed my story but said it would have probably happened anyway in time. He insisted the entire theory was nonsense, but stated that if I could tell him something of an incredible nature that would actually happen and which he could witness, then he would believe. I accepted his challenge and conceived a truly fantastic test. The Reno studio is the most insignificant in the entire Murray system because of the small population count in the city itself. There are over 300 Murray studios in the country with much larger populations, therefore providing greater possibilities to draw from. So my test was this. I told the teacher that within the next three months at the time of a national dance convention – the little Reno studio would be the foremost topic of conversation at that convention. He calmly stated this was quite impossible. That night when I retired, I felt myself standing before a tremendous audience. I was speaking on creative imagining and felt the nervousness of being before such a vast audience. But I also felt the wonderful sensation of audience acceptance. I heard the roar of applause, and as I left the stage I saw mister Murray himself come forward and shake my hand. I reenacted this entire drama night after night. It began to take on the tones of reality, and I knew I had done it again. My imaginal drama materialized down to the last detail. My little Reno studio was the talk of the convention, and I did appear on that stage just as I had done in my imagination. But even after this unbelievable but actual happening, the young teacher who threw me the challenge remained unconvinced. He said it had all happened too naturally, and he was sure it would have happened anyway. I did not mind his attitude because his challenge had given me another opportunity to prove, at least to myself, that imagining does create reality. From that time on, I continued with my ambition to own the largest Arthur Murray dance studio in the world. Night after night in my imagination, I heard myself accepting a studio franchise for a great city. Within three weeks... Mr. Murray called me and offered a studio in a city of one and a half million people. It is now my goal to make my studio the greatest and biggest in the entire system. And, of course, I know it will be done through my imagination. E.O.L. Jr. Imagining, writes Douglas Fawcett, may be hard to grasp being Quicksilver-like. It vanishes into each of its metamorphoses and thereby displays its transformative magic. We must look beyond the physical fact for the imagining which has caused it. For one year, E.O.L. Jr. lost himself in his metamorphosis, but fortunately, he remembered the silly nonsense he had gone through before getting his own studio and reread the book. Imaginal acts on the human level need a certain interval of time to develop. But imaginal acts, whether committed to print or locked in the bosom of a hermit, will realize themselves in time. Test yourself, if only out of curiosity. You will discover the prophet is your own imagining, and you will know there is no fiction. We should never be certain that it was not some woman treading in the winepress who began that subtle change in men's minds or that the passion because of which so many countries were given to the sword did not begin in the mind of some shepherd boy lighting up his eyes for a moment before it ran upon its way. William Butler Yeats There is no fiction. Imagining fulfills itself in what our lives become. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place... You may believe. John 14:29. The Greeks were right. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Acts 14:11. But they have fallen asleep and do not realize the might they wield by their imaginal activities. Real are the dreams of gods, and smoothly pass their pleasure in a long immortal dream. John Keats. E. B. an author is fully aware that today's fiction can become tomorrow's fact. In this letter, she writes, One spring, I completed a novelette, sold it, and forgot it. Not until many long months later did I sit down and nervously compare some facts in my fiction with some facts in my life. Please read a brief outline of my created story, then compare it with my personal experience. The heroine of my story took a vacation trip to Vermont, to the small city of Stowe, Vermont, to be exact. When she reached her destination, she was faced with such unpleasant behavior on the part of her companion that she either had to continue her lifetime pattern of allowing another's selfish demand dominate her, or to break that pattern and leave. She broke it and returned to New York. When she returned, and the story continues events took shape in a proposal of marriage which she happily accepted. For my part of this tale, as small events evolved, I began to remember the dictates of my own pen and insignificant relationship. This is what happened to me. I received an invitation from a friend offering me a vacation at her summer place in Vermont. I accepted and was not startled, At first, when I learned her summer place was in the city of Stowe. When I arrived, I found my hostess in such a highly nervous state, I realized I was faced with either a wretched summer or the choice of walking out on her. Never before in my life had I been strong enough to ignore what I thought were the claims of duty and friendship. But this time I did, and without ceremony, returned to New York. A few days after I returned to my home, I, too, received a proposal of marriage. But at this point, fact and fiction parted. I refused the offer. I know, Neville, there is no such thing as fiction. E.B. Forgetful is green earth. The gods alone remember everlastingly. By their great memories, the gods are known. George Meredith, Ballads and Poems of Tragic Life Ends run true to their imaginal origins. We reap the fruit of forgotten blossom time. In life, the events do not come up always where we have strown the seed, so that we may not recognize our own harvest. Events are the emergence of a hidden imaginal activity. Man is free to imagine whatever he desires. This is why, despite all fatalist and misguided prophets of doom... All awakened men know that they are free. They know that they are creating reality. Is there a scriptural passage to support this claim? Yes. And it came to pass, as he interpreted to us, so it was. Genesis 41:13. W.B. Yates must have discovered that there is no fiction. For after describing some of his experiences in the conscious use of imagination, he writes... If all who have described events like this have not dreamed, we should rewrite our histories for all men certainly are imaginative men. Must be forever casting forth enchantments, glamours, illusions, and all men, especially tranquil men who have no powerful egotistic life, must be continually passing under their power. Our most elaborate thoughts, elaborate purposes, precise emotions, are often, as I think, not really ours, but have on a sudden come up, as it were, out of hell or down out of heaven. Ideas of good and evil. There is no fiction. Imagine better than the best you know. Chapter 5 Subtle Threads All you behold, though it appears without, it is within in your imagination of which this world of mortality is but a shadow. Blake, nothing appears or continues in being by a power of its own. Events happen because comparatively stable imaginal activities created them, and they continue in being by virtue of the support they receive from such imaginal activities. The part which imagining the wish-fulfilled plays in consciously creating circumstances is obvious in this series of stories you will see how the telling of one story of the successful use of imagination can serve as a spur and a challenge to others to try it and see one night a gentleman rose in my audience he said that he had no question to ask but would like to tell me something this was his story When he came out of the armed forces after World War II, he got a job that gave him take-home pay of $25 a week. After 10 years, he was making $600 a month. At that time, he bought my book, Awakened Imagination, and read the chapter, The Pruning Shears of Revision. Through the daily practice of revision as set forth there, he was able to tell my audience two years later that his income was equal to that of the President of the United States. In my audience sat a man who, by his confession, was broke. He had read the same book, but he suddenly realized he had done nothing with the use of his imagination to solve his financial problem. He decided he would try to imagine himself as the winner of the 5-10 pool at Caliente Racetrack. In his words, In this pool, one attempts to pick winners in the 5th through the 10th races. So this is what I did. In my imagination, I stood sorting my tickets and feeling as I did so that I had each of the six winners. I enacted the scene over and over in my imagination until I actually felt goose pimples. Then I saw the cashier giving me a large sum of money which I placed beneath my imaginary shirt. This was my entire imaginal drama And for three weeks, night after night, I enacted this scene and fell asleep in the action. After three weeks, I traveled physically to the Caliente racetrack. And on that day, every detail of my imaginative play was actually realized. The only change in the scene was that the cashier gave me a check for a total of $84,000 instead of currency. T.K. After my lecture the night this story was told... A man in the audience asked me if I thought it possible for him to duplicate TK's experience. I told him he must decide the circumstances of his imaginal scene himself, but that whatever scene he chose, he must create a drama he could make natural to himself and imagine the end intently with all the feeling he could muster. He must not labor for the means to the end, but live imaginatively in the feeling of the wish fulfilled." One month later, he showed me a check for $16,000, which he had won in another 5 to 10 pool at the same Caliente racetrack the previous day. This man had a sequel to his most interesting duplication of TK's Good Fortune. His first win took care of his immediate financial difficulties, although he wanted more money for future family security. Also, and more important to him, he wanted to prove that this had not been an accident. He reasoned that if his good luck could happen a second time in succession, the so-called law of percentages would give way to proof for him that his imaginal structures were actually producing this miraculous reality. And so he dared to put his imagination to a second test. He continues, I wanted a sizable bank account, and this to me meant seeing a large balance on my bank statements. Therefore, in my imagination, I enacted a scene which took me into two banks. In each bank, I would see an appreciative smile meant for me from the bank manager as I walked into his establishment, and I would hear the teller's cordial greeting. I would ask to see my statement. In one bank, I saw a balance of $10,000. In the other bank, I saw a balance of $15,000. My imaginal scene did not end there. Immediately after seeing my bank balances, I would turn my attention to my horse racing system, which, through a progression of 10 steps, would bring my winnings to $11,533, with a starting capital of $200. I would divide the winnings into 12 piles on my desk, counting the money in my imaginary hands, I would put 1000 in each of 11 piles and the remaining $533 in the last pile. My imaginative accounting would amount to $36,533, including my bank balances. I enacted this entire imaginative scene each morning, afternoon, and night for less than one month. And on March 2nd, I went to the Caliente track again. I made out my tickets, but strangely enough, and not knowing why I did so, I duplicated six more tickets exactly like the six already made out, but in a tenth selection, I made a mistake and copied two tickets twice. As the winners came in, I held two of them each paying $16,423.50. I also had six consolation tickets each paying $656.80. The combined total amounted to thirty six thousand seven hundred eighty eight dollars. My imaginary accounting one month before had totaled thirty six thousand five hundred thirty three dollars. Two points of interest, most profound to me, were that by seeming accident I had marked two winning tickets identically, and also that at the end of the ninth race, which was one of the major winners. The trainer attempted to scratch the horse, but the stewards denied the trainer's request. AJF. How subtle were the threads that led to his goal. Results must testify to our imagining, or we really are not imagining the end at all. AJF faithfully imagined the end, and all things conspired to aid his harvesting. His mistake in copying a winning ticket twice and the steward's refusal to allow the trainer's request were events created by the imaginal drama to move the plan of things forward to its goal. Chance, wrote Belfort-Bax, may be defined as that element in the reality change, that is, in the flowing synthesis of events, which is irreducible to law or the causal category. To live wisely, we must be aware of our imaginal activities, or at any rate, of the end which they are tending. We must see to it that it is the end we desire. Wise imagining identifies itself only with such activities that are of value or promise well. However much man seems to be dealing with a material world, he is actually living in a world of imagination when he discovers that it is not the physical world of facts, but imaginal activities which shape his life, then the physical world will no longer be the reality, and the world of imagination no longer the dream. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. Christina Georgina Rossetti, Uphill. CHAPTER Six, VISIONARY FANCY The nature of visionary fancy, or imagination, is very little known, and the external nature and permanence of its ever-existent images is considered as less permanent than the things of vegetative and generative nature. Yet, the oak dies as well as the lettuce. But its eternal image and individuality never dies but renews by its seed just so the imaginative image returns by the seed of contemplative thought. Blake The images of our imagination are the realities of which any physical manifestation is only the shadow. If we are faithful to vision, the image will create for itself the only physical manifestation of itself it has a right to make. We speak of the reality of a thing, when we mean its material substance. That is exactly what an imaginist means by its unreality or shadow. Imagining is spiritual sensation. Enter into the feeling of your wish fulfilled. Through spiritual sensation, through your use of imaginal sight, sound, scent, taste and touch, you will give to your image the sensory vividness necessary to produce that image in your outer or shadow world. Here is the story of one who was faithful to his vision. F.B., being a true imaginist, remembered what he had heard in his imagination. Thus, he writes, A friend who knows my passionate fondness for opera tried to get Kristen Flagstead's complete recording Of Tristan and Isolde for me at Christmas. In over a dozen record stores he was told the same thing. RCA Victor is not reissuing this recording and there have been no copies available since June. On December 27th, I determined to prove your principle again by getting the album I desired so intensely. Lying down in my living room, I mentally walked into a record shop I patronized and asked the one salesman whose face and voice I could recall, ''Do you have Flagstad's complete isold?'' He replied, ''Yes, I have.'' That ended the scene, and I repeated it until it was real to me. Late that afternoon, I went to that record shop to physically enact the scene. Not one detail supplied by the senses had encouraged me to believe I could walk out of that shop with those records. I had been told last September by the same salesman in the same shop, the same story my friend had received there before Christmas. Approaching the salesman, I had seen in imagination that morning. I said, Do you have Flagstad's complete, Isolde? He replied, No, we haven't. "'Without saying anything audible to him, I said inwardly, "'That's not what I heard you say.' "'As I turned to leave the shop, I noticed on a top shelf "'what I thought to be an advertisement of this set of records "'and remarked to the salesman. "'If you don't have the merchandise, you shouldn't advertise it.' "'That's right,' he replied, and as he reached up to take it down, "'discovered it to be a complete album with all five records.' The scene wasn't played exactly as I had constructed it, but the result confirmed what my imagined scene implied. How can I thank you? F.B. After reading F.B.'s letter, we must agree with Anthony Eden that an assumption, though false, if persisted in, will harden into fact. F.B.'s fancy, fusing with the sense field of the record shop, enriched aspects of it and made them His, what he perceived. Our future is our imagining in its creative march. F.B. used his imagination for a conscious purpose, representing life as he desired it to be, and thereby affecting life instead of merely reflecting it. So sure was he that his imaginal drama was the reality, and the physical act but a shadow, that when the salesman said, No, we haven't, F.B. mentally said, That's not what I heard you say. He not only remembered what he had heard, but he was still remembering it. Imagining the wish fulfilled is the seeking that finds, the asking that receives, the knocking to which is opened. He saw and heard what he desired to see and hear and would not take, No, we haven't, for an answer. The imaginist dreams while awake. He is not the servant of his vision but the master of the direction of his attention. Imaginative constancy controls perception of events in space-time. Unfortunately, most men are ever-changing like a joyless eye that finds no object worth its constancy. Percy Bysshe Shelley, To the Moon Mrs. G. R. 2 had imaginatively heard what she wanted to physically hear and knew the outer world must confirm it. This is her story. Some time ago, we advertised our home for sale, which was necessary for us to buy a larger property on which we had placed a deposit. Several people would have bought our home immediately, but we were obliged to explain that we could not close any deal until we learned whether or not our offer for the property we wanted had been accepted. At this time, a broker called and literally begged us to allow him to show our home to a client of his who was eager for this location and would be glad to pay even more than we were asking. We explained our situation to the broker and to his client. They both stated they did not mind waiting for our deal to be consummated. The broker asked us to sign a paper which he said was not binding in any way, but would give him first chance at the sale if our other deal went through. We signed the paper and later learned that in California real estate law, nothing could have been more binding. A few days later, our deal for the new property fell through, so we notified this broker and his verbal response was, Well, just forget it. Two weeks later, he filed suit against us for $1,500 commission. Trial date was set, and we asked for a jury trial. Our attorney assured us he would do all he could, but that the law on this particular point was so stringent that he could not see any possibility of our winning the case. When time for the trial arrived, my husband was in the hospital and could not appear with me in our defense. I had no witnesses, but the broker brought three attorneys and a number of witnesses into court against us. Our attorney now told me we had not the slightest chance to win. I turned to my imagination, and this is what I did. Completely disregarding all that had been said by attorneys, witnesses, and the judge who seemed to favor the plaintiff, I thought only of the words I wanted to hear. In my imagination, I listened intently and heard the foreman of the jury say, We find the defendant not guilty. I listened until I knew it was true. I closed my mind's ear to everything said in that courtroom and heard only those words. We find the defendant not guilty. The jury deliberated from noon recess until 4.30 that afternoon, and all during those hours, I sat in the courtroom and heard those words over and over in my imagination. When the jurors returned, the judge asked the foreman to stand and give their verdict. The foreman stood up and said, We find the defendant not guilty. Mrs. G. R. If there were dreams to sell, what would you buy? Thomas Lovell Beddoes, Dream Peddlery Would you not buy your wish fulfilled? Your dreams are without price and without money. By locking up the jury in her imagination, hearing only what she wanted to hear, She called the jury to unanimity on her behalf. Imagining being the reality of all that exists, with it, the lady achieved her wish fulfilled. Hebel's statement that the poet creates from contemplation is true of imaginists as well. They know how to utilize their video-audio hallucinations to create reality. Nothing is so fatal as conformity. We must not allow ourselves to be grit about by the ringed fixity of fact. Change the image and thereby change the fact. R.O. employed the art of seeing and feeling to create her vision in imagination. A year ago I took my children to Europe, leaving my furnished apartment in the care of my maid. Then we returned a few months later to the United States... I found my maid and all my furniture gone. The apartment superintendent stated that the maid had had my furniture moved by my request. There was nothing I could do at the moment, so I took my children and moved into a hotel. I, of course, reported the incident to the police and also bought in private detectives on the case. Both organizations investigated every moving company and every storage warehouse in New York City but to no avail. There seemed to be absolutely no trace of my furniture, nor of my maid. Having exhausted all outside sources, I remembered your teaching, and decided I would try using my imagination in this matter. So, while seated in my hotel room, I closed my eyes, and imagined myself in my own apartment, sitting in my favorite chair, and surrounded by all of my personal furnishings, I looked across the living room at the piano on which I kept pictures of my children. I would continue to stare at my piano until the entire room became vividly real to me. I could see my children's pictures and actually feel the upholstery of the chair in which, in my imagination, I sat. The next day, as I came out of my bank, I turned to walk in the direction of my vacant apartment instead of toward my hotel. When I reached the corner... I discovered my mistake and was just about to turn back when my attention was drawn to a very familiar pair of ankles. Yes, the ankles belonged to my maid. I walked up to her and took hold of her arm. She was quite frightened, but I assured her all I wanted from her was my furniture. I called a taxi and she took me to the place in which her friends had stored my furnishings. In one day, my imagination had found what an entire big city police force and private investigators could not find in weeks. R.O. This lady knew of the secret of imagining before she called in the police. But imagining, in spite of its importance, was forgotten owing to attention being fixed on facts. However, what reason failed to find by force imagining found without effort. Nothing merely goes on, including the sense of loss, without its imaginal support. By imagining that she was seated in her own chair, in her own living room, surrounded by all of her own furnishings, she withdrew the imaginal support she had given to her sense of loss, and by this imaginal change, she recovered her lost furniture and re-established her home. Your imagination is most creative when you imagine things as you desire them to be. Building a new experience out of a dream of fancy. To build such a dream of fancy in her imagination, F.G. brought to play all of her senses. Sight, sound, touch, smell, even taste. This is her story. Since childhood, I have dreamed of visiting faraway places. The West Indies, particularly, fired my fancy, and I would revel in the feeling of actually being there. Dreams are wonderfully inexpensive, and as an adult, I continued to dream my dreams, for I had no money or time to make them come true. Last year, I was taken to the hospital in need of surgery. I had heard your teaching, and while recuperating, had decided to intensify my favorite daydream while I had time on my hands. I actually wrote to the Alcoa steamship line, asking for free travel folders and poured over them. Hour after hour, choosing the ship and the stateroom and the seven ports I desired most to see. I would close my eyes and in my imagination would walk up the gangplank of that ship and feel the movement of water as the great liner pushed its way into free ocean. I heard the thud of waves breaking against the sides of the ship, felt the steaming warmth of a tropical sun on my face, and smelled and tasted salt in the air as we all sailed through blue waters. For one solid week, confined to a hospital bed, I lived the free and happy experience of actually being on that ship. Then, the day before my release from the hospital, I tucked the colored folders away and forgot them. Two months later, I received a telegram from an advertising agency telling me I had won a contest. I remembered having deposited a contest coupon some months before in a neighborhood supermarket but had completely forgotten the act. I had won first prize, and wonder of wonders, it entitled me to a Caribbean cruise sponsored by the Alcoa steamship line. But the wonder didn't stop there the very stateroom I had imaginatively lived in and moved about in while confined to a hospital bed had been assigned to me. And to make an unbelievable story even more unbelievable, I sailed on the one ship I had chosen, which stopped in not one, but all of the seven ports I had desired to visit. F.G. To travel is the privilege not of the rich, but of the imaginative. Stephen Baron Stanton, The Essential Life, 1908 Chapter 7 Moods This is an age in which the mood decides the fortunes of people, rather than the fortunes decide the mood. Sir Winston Churchill Men regard their moods far too much as effects, and not sufficiently as causes. Moods are imaginal activities without which no creation is possible. We say that we are happy because we have achieved our goal. We do not realize that the process works equally well in the reverse direction, that we shall achieve our goal because we have assumed the happy feeling of the wish fulfilled. Moods are not only the result of the conditions of our life, they are also the causes of those conditions. In the Psychology of Emotions, Professor Rebo writes, an idea which is only an idea produces nothing and does nothing. It only acts if it is felt, if it is accompanied by an effective state, if it awakens tendencies, that is to say, motor elements the lady in the following story so successfully felt the feeling of her wish fulfilled she made her mood the character of the night frozen in a delightful dream most of us read and love fairy stories but we all know that stories of improbable riches and good fortune are for the delight of the very young but are they I want to tell you of something unbelievably wonderful that happened to me through the power of my imagination, and I am not young in years. We live in an age which believes in neither fable nor magic, and yet everything I could possibly want in my wildest daydreams was given to me by the simple use of what you teach. That imagining creates reality, and that feeling is the secret of imagining. At the time, this wonderful thing happened to me. I was out of a job and had no family to fall back upon for support. I needed just about everything. To find a decent job, I needed a car to look for it. And though I had a car, it was so worn out, it was ready to fall apart. I was behind in my rent. I had no proper clothes to seek a job. And today, it's no fun for a woman of 55 to apply for a job of any kind. My bank account was almost depleted, and there was no friend to whom I could turn. But I had been attending your lectures for almost a year, and my desperation forced me to put my imagination to the test. Indeed, I had nothing to lose. It was natural for me, I suppose, to begin by imagining myself having everything I needed but I needed so many things and in such short order that I found myself exhausted when I finally got through the list. And by that time, I was so nervous I could not sleep. One lecture night, I heard you tell of an artist who captured the feeling, or word as you called it, of Isn't It Wonderful? in his personal experience. I began to apply this idea to my case. Instead of thinking of and imagining every article I needed, I tried to capture the feeling that something wonderful was happening to me. Not tomorrow, not next week, but right now. I would say over and over to myself as I fell asleep, Isn't it wonderful? Something marvelous is happening to me now. And as I fell asleep, I would feel the way I would expect to feel under such circumstances. I repeated that imaginary action and feeling for two months, night after night, and one day, in early October, I met a casual friend I hadn't seen for months, who informed me he was about to leave on a trip to New York. I had lived in New York many years ago, and we talked of the city a few moments, and then parted. I completely forgot the incident. One month later, to the day... This man called at my apartment and simply handed me a certified check in my name for $2,500. After I got over the initial shock of seeing my name on a check for so much money, the story that unfolded seemed to me like a dream. It concerned a friend I had not seen nor heard from in more than 25 years. This friend of my past, I now learned, had become extremely wealthy in those 25 years. Our mutual acquaintance who had brought the check to me had met him quite by accident during the trip to New York last month. During their conversation, they spoke of me, and for reasons I was not to know, for to this day I have not heard from him personally and have never attempted to contact him, this old friend decided to share a portion of his great wealth with me. For the next two years from the office of his attorney, I received monthly checks, so generous in amount, they not only covered every necessary requirement of daily living, but left much over for all the lovely things of life, a car, clothes, a spacious apartment, and best of all, no need to earn my daily bread. This past month, I received a letter and some legal papers to be signed, which provide the continuation of this monthly income For the rest of my natural life. T.K. If the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. William Blake. Sir Winston calls on us to act on the assumption that we already possess that which we sought. To assume a virtue, if we have it not. William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Is this not the secret of miracles? Thus, the man with palsy was told to rise, to take up his bed and walk, to mentally act as if he were healed. Matthew nine one through eight, Mark two one through thirteen, Luke five eighteen through twenty five, John five one through seventeen, and when the actions of his imagination corresponded with the actions which he would physically perform, were he healed. He was healed. This is a story about which some may say it would have happened anyway. But those who read it carefully will find room to wonder. It begins one year ago as I left Los Angeles to visit my daughter in San Francisco. Instead of the happy-natured individual she had always been, I found her in deep distress not knowing the cause of her anguish and not wishing to ask. I waited until she told me that she was in great financial trouble and must have $3,000 immediately. I am not a poor woman, but I didn't have much cash I could put my hands on that quickly. Knowing my daughter, I knew she would not have accepted it anyway. I offered to borrow the money for her, but she refused and instead asked me to help her in my way. She meant using my imagination, for I had often told her of your teaching, and some of my words must have struck home. I immediately agreed on this plan with the provision that she would help me help her. We decided on an imaginal scene we could both practice that involved seeing money coming to her from everywhere. We felt money was flooding toward her from every corner, until she was in the middle of a sea of money but we did this always with the feeling of joy, for anyone concerned, and we had no thought of means, only happiness for all. The idea seemed to catch fire with her, and I know she was responsible for what happened a few days later. She was certainly transformed back to the happy, confident mood that was natural to her, though there was no evidence of any real money coming in at the time. I left to return home in the East, When I arrived home, I called my mother, a lovely young lady of 91, who immediately asked me to come and see her. I wanted a day's rest, but she couldn't wait. It had to be now. Of course I went. And after greeting me, she handed me a check for $3,000, made out to my daughter. Before I could speak, she handed me three additional checks, totaling $1,500, made in favor of my daughter's children. Her reason? She explained that she had suddenly decided the day before to give what she had in cash to those she loved while she was still here to know of their happiness in receiving it. It would have happened anyway? No, not like this. Not within days of my daughter's frantic need and then her sudden transformation to a mood of joy. I know that her imaginal act caused this wonderful change, bringing not only great joy to the receiver... But to the giver as well. P.S. I almost forgot to add that among the checks so lavishly given was one for me too, for $3,000. M.B. The boundless opportunities opened by recognizing the shift of the focus of imagining are beyond measure. There are no boundaries. The drama of life is an imaginal activity in which we bring to pass by our moods rather than by our physical acts. Moods so ably guide all towards that which they affirm. They may be said to create the circumstances of life and dictate the events. The mood of the wish fulfilled is the high tide which lifts us easily off the bar of the senses where we usually lie stranded. If we are aware of the mood, and know this secret of imagining, we may announce that all that our mood affirms will come to pass. The following story is by a mother who succeeded in sustaining a seemingly playful mood with startling results. Surely you've heard the old wives' tale about warts, that if a wart is bought, it will disappear? I've known this story from childhood, but not until I heard your lectures did I realize the truth hidden in the old tale. My boy, a lad of ten, had many large ugly warts on his legs, causing an irritation which had plagued him for years. I decided that my sudden insight could be used to his advantage. A boy has a lot of faith in his mother as a rule so I asked him if he would like to be rid of his warts. He quickly said, yes, but he did not want to go to a doctor. I asked him to play a little game with me, that I would pay him a sum of money for each wart. Well, This suited him fine. He said he didn't see how he could lose. We arrived at a fair price, he thought, and then I said, now I'm paying you good money for those warts. They no longer belong to you. You never keep property belonging to someone else, so you can no longer keep those warts. They will disappear. It may take a day, two days, or a month, but remember that I've bought them, and they belong to me. My son was delighted with our game, and the results sound like something read in old, musty books on magic. But believe me, within ten days, the warts began to fade and at the end of one month, every wart on his body had completely disappeared. There is a sequel to this story, for I've bought warts from many people. They, too, thought it great fun and accepted my five, seven, or ten cents a wart. In each case, the wart disappeared. But really, only one person believes me when I tell him his imagination alone took away the warts. That person is my young son. J.R. Man imagining himself into a mood takes on himself the results of the mood. If he does not imagine himself into the mood, he is ever free of the result. The great Irish mystic A.E. George William Russell wrote in The Candle of Vision, I became aware of a swift echo or response to my own moods in circumstance which had seemed hitherto immutable in its indifference. I could prophesy from the uprising of new moods in myself that I, without search, would soon meet people of a certain character, and so I met them. Even inanimate things were under the sway of these affinities. But man need not wait for the uprising of new moods in himself, He can create happy moods at will.